Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. This morning we're going to pick it back up in the book of Philippians, which is the series that we've been going through, Jesus Our Joy. And uh, let's just begin by praying and asking the Lord to help us to focus on Him and His Word this morning. Father, thank You so, so much, Lord, that we can come together and that we can look at Your Word and that we can be together and worship You as we did this morning. And Lord, we realize that we have many things on our minds, we have many things going on in our lives, but we want to ask You to help us to be able to focus on what you have to say to us this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would use me as the teacher, as the pastor, to be able to communicate your word clearly. And just help us all to be able to apply this to our lives and to learn what you want us to learn. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, God isn't always as, as neat and tidy and proper, and maybe even as refined as we sometimes would like him to be, and as we maybe communicate him to be in our churches. Um, sometimes he, he uh, when he has a point that he wants to make explicitly clear in the scriptures, he, he doesn't mince words. He doesn't beat around the bush. He is sometimes brutally honest. And in our passage this morning today in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, we're going to see one of those times when God may not be as proper as we'd like Him to be. Our passage today contains a word that is found only once in the New Testament. And the, the word in the Greek language is skubalon. And this word is translated in our ESV that we're going to be looking at today as the word rubbish. You might have seen it as the word garbage or waste in other translations, but the King James Version actually gets this one right. It's the most accurate, and the King James translate it, translates it as, anybody know? Dung. The word dung. This is the word for human waste, excrement, feces, defecation, and we're going to be talking about that a little bit today. So why would God want to use this word in this passage? What, what, what is so important that he would use that, that he would ordain the Apostle Paul to use that word? Let's find out as we look at the passage this morning. The title of this message this morning is Don't Glory in Number Two. And we will... Oh, you guys are quick. Well, hopefully that explains this passage well. I think it does, and if you don't get that and you don't understand why they're laughing, I think you'll see by the end of the message. So let's, uh, let's look at the whole passage first, nine verses, and uh, we'll digest it slowly and then look at it piece by piece at the end. It says in verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I gain, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So this is not a dull passage. I mean, we see imagery in this passage of of feral dogs, of circumcision, and of human waste. And we're going to see why all this is packed into nine small verses. So let's, let's dig in and just take it apart and look at verse 1, and we'll talk about that. Verse 1, finally, my brothers. Now, first of all, the first thing that we notice here, Paul says, finally. And, you know, as a, as a pastor, I'm catching this because... There have been so many times that we pastors will be not even halfway through a sermon and we'll be like, now finally, and you guys are thinking, okay, he's about to end, and 30 minutes later, we're still going. And this is halfway through the book of Philippians, and Paul's saying, finally, my brothers, but what he means here, he doesn't mean, this is like the last, very last thing I'm going to say, and I'm almost done with the book. He means, he means, now here's a new subject, and this is the rest of what I'm going to say. So we're starting kind of a new line of thinking, and it's, it really threads into everything else he's going to say in the book in the last couple of chapters. And this verse, verse 1, when, when read as a whole, tells us that repetition in this doctrine, the doctrine that we're going to see today, is safe. Verse 1 again, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you, is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So Paul has written this before. He's told them of this doctrine before. Now, what doctrine is it that he's told them of, that he's telling them it's okay to hear this again and again and again because it's safe? Well, he hasn't developed it yet, and we don't see it yet because we're only in verse 1. But as we see, as we continue through these verses, we will see it more clearly. But the first thing to understand right here is that Repetition, especially in this doctrine, but in many doctrines, is a safe, safe place to be. Because we have an enemy, and that enemy is going to try to corrupt our doctrine. He's going to try to twist our doctrine. He's going to try to make us think things that aren't written in Scripture. Doctrine, by the way, is just teaching. And so when Paul says to write the same thing to you, in other words, repetition in this doctrine is safe, what he's saying is, it's, it's really important that we get this nailed down, that we get this beat into our heads. And he wanted the Philippians to have it nailed down. And this reminded me, I was working on my house this past week, and I, I added a, a couple of rooms on to the back side of the house, and uh, a second story room to be exact. So under the house, I felt a little bit uncomfortable with the weight of that second story and I thought I should beef up the, the floor joists a little bit underneath. And so 
um, I had an oak beam that I wanted to put in there. And I, I, I cut the oak beam to size and I put it in under the floor joists. And did you ever, have you ever tried to nail through oak? It's a hard, dense wood. It's, it's, you, you can't just like knock the nail through like a piece of pine with the hammer, you know. If you're strong enough, you can hit a nail in maybe like one or two hits and it goes into pine. But in oak, you've got to hammer, 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 hammer again and again and again. And that's what Paul's basically saying. Some, some doctrines are dense, but they are important enough that we hammer, hammer, hammer them. This is one of those doctrines. And when we do get this, when we keep saying this, it makes us safe because just like that oak beam is a strong beam that's going to hold my house up and make it safe and not allow my floor to bow, this doctrine is going to support our faith. And as we develop it and you see what it is, you'll understand why it's so important. Paul wants to brace our theology with an oak beam today. And with the Philippians, he nailed it and nailed it and nailed it. And I hope that this is a doctrine that we continue to nail because it's that important. So that's verse 1. And Paul's building slowly into his conclusion. So let's ask the question, what, what exactly is it that we're going to be kept safe from? Why is repetition in this doctrine? Why is to hear the same thing no trouble to him, but safe for us. What is it that we're going to be safe from? Well, in verse 2, we find out. Verse 2 says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So Paul is basically posting a warning sign here for us, for the Philippians, that says, Beware of the dogs. It's important for us to understand the cultural perception of dogs in first century Philippi, back when this was going on in Bible times. Dogs weren't domesticated pets usually like we have today. How many dog owners do we have in the room? Mo most people. A lot of dog lovers here. Uh, we have a dog in our family, Daffodil, and she's, uh, you know, she gets her nails trimmed. She likes to even wear a little sweater vest around. She actually likes to. Um, she'll lay on the couch, you know. She's like a part of our family. You wouldn't find that very often in first century Philippi. Dogs weren't like invited into your house and invited to lay on your bed or on the couch and didn't wear little sweaters and get their nails trimmed. Dogs were, dogs were looked down upon. They were despised. It was an insult to be called a dog. Dogs were like rats, only bigger. They, they were like the scavengers that usually just came out at night and bit little children. They were mean. And so they weren't looked at the same way that we look at dogs. And so for Paul to be saying this, look out for the dogs. He's, he's not actually saying literally look out for those dogs. He's calling a group of people dogs. He's insulting a group of people who are coming into the church and trying to pollute and corrupt this doctrine that he's going to lay out for us. So, I was thinking, how, how would, what would we call people today? Like, what kind of animal? I, and I don't, I don't really know if we have an equivalent. Maybe like if, 
Could you imagine if I was preaching and I singled out a group of people and called them a bunch of pigs? Like that's an animal that we kind of look down on. This, this, the corruption of this doctrine that he's building here is so important that he, he's calling these people dogs. And that's okay with God because God allowed him to say that in Scripture. So these people are just bad, evil people. As a matter of fact, he says, beware of the evildoers, another name for them. They were dogs, they were, they were evildoers, and they were those who mutilate the flesh. We'll get to that. But what we're going to see, the reason that, that Paul was so um, fired up about this and calling these people dogs was because they, what they were doing was they were influencing the church in Philippi towards a works-based salvation. They were influencing the church towards a works-based salvation. In other words, they were, they were telling the church, look at your human righteousness. How does your life look? Look at your human righteousness and some things that you do or don't do as a human works. And he was, they were putting that in the same category as how we attain our salvation, or maybe how we maintain our salvation, or how we retain our salvation. And God wants to make it explicitly clear that that is not a good thing. That is a very, very bad thing. Let's fast forward for a minute to verse 9 in this passage, because verse 9 really helps us to understand this. Verse 9 tells us, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Faith. See, this is important to get. There are only two kinds of righteousness. There are two kinds of righteousness. There is a righteousness of our own, the way he puts it here in verse 9. This is the righteousness that it's subjective. It's like, how good of a Christian are you? How good of a Christian am I? How much do we do for the Lord? What kind of things do we do that are good? What kind of things don't we do that are bad? This is our, I like to call it experiential righteousness. This is the righteousness that that we practice, that we can experience. That's the righteousness that's our own. But then there's another kind of righteousness, the righteousness that he says is from God that doesn't depend on you. It depends on faith. It depends on faith alone in Christ alone. And so the big problem in the church at Philippi was that the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators, they were coming in and they were, they were teaching a mixed teaching where they were mixing these two kind of righteousnesses together. And one of the, the main things that they were mixing in, and, and as we'll see, you can mix in anything that's a work that you do or don't do. But one of the main things they were mixing in was this idea of circumcision. Now, uh, Paul says at the end of verse 2, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. And you might be thinking, well, what does that mean? What's he talking about, those who mutilate the flesh? And um, it can be a sensitive topic for 
for the guys in the room, but we see that he's talking about circumcision in verse, verses 3 through 6 because he goes on to say, for we are the circumcision. Now I'll explain what that means in a second, but he says we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And that's a key phrase, by the way. Who glory in Christ Jesus, what he did, who he is, and put no confidence in the flesh, what we do, who we are. He says, we are the circumcision who do that. Though I myself have reason for confidence, Paul says. Paul's saying here, basically like, okay, you want to have a flesh game? You want to see who's the most, the most righteous in the flesh? Let's get it on. Paul says, you can't compete with me. He, he's basically boasting here in his life. And Paul, he lived a pretty good life. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. No false humility there. Circumcised on the eighth day as the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Look, you and I couldn't compete with Paul. The way his life looked, it looked blameless. Doesn't mean Paul didn't have sin, but basically he's saying, hey, compared to everyone else, I'm pretty blameless. I walk the walk, I talk the talk, and my human righteousness, he says, it's up here. It's at the top. If we're ranking one another, and Paul's in the room, he's, he's a pro, and we're all probably amateurs. And what's he saying here? Now, back to the, back to the circumcision thing, just to explain this. He's saying, I got circumcised on the eighth day. That's what the Old Testament law said to do. And these people were coming into the church and one of the things they were telling people that they need to do to be saved was to be circumcised. So I'm just thinking like back to first century Philippi, how this would go down. And I'm imagining one of these dogs, the, the people who are, who are saying this, coming into maybe a local coffee bar or something and Let's say that there was a group of young Christian men who were saved maybe a year ago. They're new Christians. And one of these guys, uh, we'll, call him, we'll call him Jimmy. Jimmy's sitting there at the coffee bar. One of these dogs come in. He's like, hey, Jimmy. And Jimmy's like, oh, hey there. And the dog says, so, Jimmy, are you saved? And Jimmy's like, yeah, I'm saved. I've been saved for a year. Salvation is so great, isn't it? And the dog's like, well, uh, yeah, Jimmy, it's great, but have you been circumcised? And Jimmy's like, circumcised? What are you, what are you talking about? And he, and he said, the dog's like, well, Jimmy, circumcised, that's when you, and Jimmy's, I know what that means, you creep. Why are you asking me if I've been circumcised? And this dog proceeds to tell Jimmy, well, Jimmy, in the scriptures, God tells us that we should be circumcised, that this is a, a display of our faith. And if you're not circumcised, then I don't think your faith is real, Jimmy. I don't think it's real, because you need to be circumcised to prove that it's real. So this is what was going on in the Philippian church. 
This is what the dogs were telling the Christians there. And this was a common thing back in the first century because they had just come out of the Old Covenant, the law where you had to be circumcised. And so this is going on in the church in Philippi. This is going on in the church in Galatia. It's going on in a lot of places. And circumcision was a part of God's covenant in the Old Covenant. So the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, that was a part of how to live life for God's people. But in the New Covenant, there's no law telling us we have to do that. And so righteousness in the New Covenant, as we saw in verse 9, is a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. So when Paul says that we are the circumcision, what, what does he mean by that? Like, why would he use this imagery to describe us, Christian people, in the New Covenant? Well, basically, Paul is saying that spiritually, we have our righteousness through faith in Christ, and the flesh has been removed from that equation. Just like in circumcision, the flesh is removed. In circumcision spiritually, the flesh is removed from that equation, and therefore our righteousness comes only through Christ and Him alone. And Paul actually, this is so important to Paul, and was such a problem in the first century church, that Paul said to the Galatians, whenever they had these people coming in, in chapter 5, verse 12, he said, I wish that those who unsettle you by teaching this doctrine would emasculate themselves. I wish that these people would emasculate themselves. And, and Paul's talking about the people who are telling the Christian guys, you've got to be circumcised to be truly saved. I mean, he's basically saying, I wish they would move the knife back a little farther. That's, that's what he's saying here. So God can be pretty graphic when he wants to get a point across. God has allowed the Apostle Paul to put these things in his letters in the Scripture to show us how important this is. Now, we don't really see many churches telling people that they need to be circumcised today. And let me, listen, I want to put a disclaimer out. Um, He's not saying circumcision is bad, okay? He's not saying that. There are many good health reasons for circumcision. Um, And he's not saying don't do it. He's just saying don't do it for the wrong reason. That's important. He's saying don't do this because you think it's going to validate your salvation. That's what was going on back in the first century. And we we don't have this problem usually today. I mean, I don't know many churches who are who are. Christian churches saying that you need to be circumcised to validate your salvation. But we do do this with other kinds of works. I mean, I can think of a a Christian church right now, and many of you probably can think of this church as well, who would preach the equivalent of baptism for salvation. That your salvation isn't effectual unless you are baptized. There are many, many things. You could, some churches might teach that you have to say a certain prayer. Some churches might say that you have to go to confession. Some churches might say that you have to 
It doesn't matter. Do anything. Live up to a certain standard that usually is just the standard of the person saying it. Everybody below that, I don't know. Everybody above that, you're okay. So whatever standard it is that we put in the equation of salvation, what we're doing is we're polluting that equation. Paul says, as he says in verse 9, and as he he says over a hundred other times in the New Testament, that we are saved by Christ alone through faith alone. It's a clear, clear teaching. And God says it that many times because we need to pound this over and over and over again because we have a real enemy, Satan, who wants to corrupt this doctrine. And he has influenced so many people today in the church that these people, like the dogs in first century Philippi, would come in and corrupt the church with a mixed works faith teaching. This is so important to God that we need to just understand it so that we don't have confidence in the wrong things. Verse 3, again, for we, the circumcision, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. You can't say I'm a, I'm a true Christian because I blank if that blank holds anything other than trust in Christ alone for my salvation. If we add anything to that, we're polluting the pot that God wants to keep pure. You know, we'll, we're going to talk a little bit more about this word scubalon, where he brings up this word for feces. But the reason, I mean, he's bringing this up. By the way, this, the word, when we get there, I'll say this again, but that word is the word in, first, in the first century uh, Greek that would convey the most shock value. Like, like us, they had different words for, for human waste. You know, I mentioned three of them already. Waste, excrement, defecation, feces, four of them. They had different ones. Many Greek scholars believe that this word would be the word that would promote the most shock value, the most revulsion among the hearers, and would probably be best translated with a word that wouldn't really fly that well in our churches and in our Bible translations. That is how shocking Paul wanted this to sound. And when we do this, when we do what we're talking about and add anything else to the salvation equation, basically we're mixing it with waste. That's what his point is. He says we should glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in anything that we do in the flesh. None. So I'm thinking of like, I mean, he's going pretty graphic, so I'll go pretty graphic. I, the thought popped into my mind, what if you had a big glass of milk? And it was just pure milk. And you just mixed a little bit of human waste into that milk. Would you drink it? No. Just a little bit, though. Come on. Like, can't we just have a little bit to do with our salvation? Can't we just, maybe a little bit. Like, I go to church, right? So, I mean, I, I don't do what that person does. That's just adding a little bit to your milk. You wouldn't do that. That's what God wants us to get here. It's that serious. Paul says in verse 4, 
though I myself have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he goes through his resume. This is what we do. What, what he's getting at here is what we do when we compare others with ourselves. So if we're looking down on someone who is a Christian, and we're starting to question, I, I, I'm not so sure that they're a Christian, based on what they do or don't do. That's what Paul's getting at here. He, he's saying, maybe the best way to explain this is this. I teach a class um, every Friday with about 20 teenagers in it, mostly from our church. And we're going through this book, and the author, the author said it this way. He was getting at this point. He was talking about how when we compare ourselves with others, for the purpose of either validating our own salvation, well, I must be saved because look at my life compared to his. Which that's what Paul's getting at. Or I don't think they're saved because look at their life compared to mine. What he's saying, what this author said, is, it's like this. He lives on the West Coast, California. And he said, it's like if we all gathered at the shore, at the West Coast, and we had a contest, and we're going to see who can jump to Hawaii. Okay, well, Hawaii's like thousands of miles, I think, away from the shoreline of California. But we're going to have a contest, and maybe, maybe some of you young athletic people could do, I don't know, 15 feet, 13 feet, 10 feet. Maybe some of us might get five. I mean, that would be like, if, if I could jump 10, and you jump five, and I look at you, and I'm like, Phew. Five feet. That's nothing, you know. But we're having a contest to get to Hawaii. It's like, why even compete? That's how, that's how, it, how it is when we look at each other and compare ourselves by ourselves, to use the biblical term, terminology. It's ridiculous. Jesus is the one who's perfect, and on a scale of us and Jesus, none of us even come close. The Hawaii thing's not even close. God doesn't grade on a curve when it comes to attaining salvation or retaining salvation or maintaining salvation. It's all of Christ and none of us. And it's just ridiculous to compare ourselves and say, well, and usually this is how it is too, isn't it? It's like, this, think, be honest. If you've done this, and I think we all have, Wherever you are personally, that's like the line. You don't say it that way. You don't even think it that way. But it's like, that's the line. So I know I'm saved because I do this and that, and I don't do this and that. But that person isn't as good as me. I'm at 10 feet. He's at 8. He's not saved. Now, the person at 11 or 12, they're good. They're good. People here at 10 with me, they're good. They're good. Isn't that what we do? That's what Paul's getting at here. He's saying, listen, you want to compare yourself? Compare yourself with me, and you're not even going to come close. I'm pro, you're amateur. You're way down here. And there's no false humility, and I love it, because Paul walked the walk. But the, he knew that's not what counted for his salvation. As a matter of fact, it didn't even count as gain. It counted as loss. I mean, it didn't count as gain. It didn't even count as neutral. It counted as loss. 
So his good life, it wasn't like, oh, that's helpful. It wasn't even like, well, it's just worthless, it's meaningless, it doesn't mean anything. It was loss. It was a liability to things whenever we're talking about this category of salvation. Paul says in verses 7 and 8, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as scubalon. Rubbish is the cleaned up version. And again, this word could mean waste in the same way that we use it in two ways. We, you know, we have waste collectors that come and get our garbage and we talk about waste in another way. Again, this is, I believe, in the context and according to most Greek scholars, rubbish is a cleaned up version. When I started this message off, I said we like to make God sometimes sound a little more proper and refined and cleaned up. And the translators had a dilemma here. Do we go with the cleaned up version or do we go with the really, really repulsive, disgusting translation? And I think the King James translators got it right. This is talking about dung. Because he's saying, look, garbage is worthless. Rubbish is worthless. Okay, It doesn't have any value. He's not saying, well, my works are just worthless. He's saying, I count them as loss. They're detrimental whenever they're factored into this equation. They pollute the pot of God's true righteousness when it's mixed together. This is, this is scubalon. This is feces. I count them as feces in order that I may gain Christ. So, Paul, it's, it's pretty clear here what he's doing. He's saying, look guys, there's a category over here called God's righteousness. You get that by faith in Christ alone because he's the only one who ever was. There's this category over here called our righteousness. Now, hear this, because this is important. Usually, when this doctrine's preached, some of us will misunderstand and say, well, you're saying that human righteousness isn't even important. You're saying it doesn't matter how I live. You're saying that I, I should just go murder people or whatever. And he's not saying that at all. Human righteousness is important. It's just not important for the attaining of our salvation, the retaining of our salvation, and the maintaining of our salvation. It shouldn't be in that category at all. And when we mix it into that category, it stinks really bad to God. And it smells like scubalon. It's like pouring a bunch of it in your milk. It's bad. We don't want to do that. We've got to keep these categories separate. Paul says in Romans 3.28, we must hold to this doctrine, same one he's preaching here, that we are saved by faith alone apart from works. Apart from works. You've got to keep them separate. You can't mix them. Because when you mix them, all kinds of bad things happen. Starting with self-righteousness, because I'm an eight and you're only a six. And that's not how it works. So is, is righteousness, experiential, practical righteousness good? Yes, it's good for sanctification. It's good for growing in Christ. It's good for worshiping Him with our lives. It's good for loving one another. It's good for all of these things, but it has nothing to do with soteriology, just a big word meaning how we're saved and how we keep our salvation. Nothing to do. We've got to keep it separate. And there are dogs today 
who would seek to mix those two things. They should not be mixed. So I agree with the King James translators that it's dung. And it is, by the way, the word that would be the most repulsive word in the first century Greek. Daniel Wallace, who's a Greek scholar, says, if mere rubbish was the force here, then a sense of worthlessness is in view. But if feces is the force, then both worthlessness and revulsion are in view. And that's the context that we're talking about here in this passage. So never ever use your human righteousness as a validation or a proof of your salvation because when you do that, you're covering yourself in human waste and presenting yourself to God with your human waste mixed in. Look, let let me just give you an illustration. Let Jesus give you an illustration of what this looks like, okay? Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, if we could project that. Here are people who did that. And this is the last day when they're standing before the Lord. Lord, Lord. And here they go, getting out the resume. Lord, didn't we, didn't we prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works? Do, do. That's the word ergo in Greek. That's the work word. That's, didn't we do? Look at my life, Lord. Come on. And he says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Paul calls them evildoers. Same thing. Paul is using the imagery of dung in this passage to describe our works. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah used similar imagery when he said that our works, our righteousness, is like filthy rags. And what he had in mind was, compared to the righteousness that we need, the only righteousness that will save us, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our best efforts are like filthy rags. And you know what? Why not? Let's just, let me tell you what that means. Many of you probably know But since we're going with some pretty edgy descriptions of words today, the Hebrew, if that was translated very accurately, would be our righteousness is like used menstrual rags. That's what it says in the Old Testament. Sometimes we clean things up a little bit, and that's why pastors have to say, now literally in the Bible this means this. And I I think we should just have a translation that says what it means. Because we want to know what God thinks. And God is making it explicitly clear in these passages what he thinks about our works. Not our works regarding sanctification. He wants us to live good lives. But when we mix those works in with the validation of our salvation, it stinks really, really badly. So, God is interested in our faith. Those people who we just read about that stand there and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this and this and this? That's not what you say to God when you're talking about why you should go to heaven and have eternal life. 
you say, Lord, I believed in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that He died for my sins, and that He rose from the dead to validate the fact that He is God. That's what you say. You don't say anything about yourself. And I want us to know that because those people ended up in hell. Isaac, I don't know if you can pull up this verse, but Romans 4, 4 and 5, if I don't have it in my notes, is just a, a really, really hard hit with that hammer on this nail. Romans 4, 4 and 5, if we can find that, we'll look at that one. It's, I'll read it while he's pulling it up. Just pay attention to this because this speaks volumes. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, if those people would have said, Lord, haven't we done this and this and this? And the Lord said, yes, you've done that and that. Come to heaven with me. Basically, he's paying them. They earned it. That's what Paul's saying here. But in verse 5, he says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. His faith. Whose faith? The one who works? No. The one who does not work. Does that mean we shouldn't do good works? No. That means we shouldn't do good works and mix them with the fact that we're justifying ourselves by anything that we do. It's all of Christ and none of us. We are saved by Christ alone, by His grace alone, through faith alone, and not in anything that we do. So, Philippians 3.9, we want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on not you, not what you do, not what you don't do, but faith. And we want to be a church that holds to this and holds fast to it like Romans 3.28 says because it can be slippery. We've got to hold it tightly because inside each of us is this flesh that wants to be justified or at least mix a little bit of something that we do or don't do in. So we've got to hold on to this. And like Paul said at the beginning, I, I write these things to you, these same things, and it's no trouble for me and it's actually safe for you. This doctrine will keep us safe from the dogs and from the evildoers of our day. And by God's grace, for as long as I'm a pastor here, I will say this over and over and over again because it's that important. So let me, let me try to make it explicitly clear, this doctrine. That is, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And adding your personal righteousness into this equation is like adding sewage to the gospel. It is important, but it's not important for salvation. We're saved 
by grace, through faith in Christ alone. Let's pray. Let's have the band come up while we pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the repetition by which you explain this in the New Testament. Father, I pray that this would be the doctrine that we measure all other doctrines by, and that this would be where we find our assurance of salvation. Because none of us even come close to measuring up. None of us meet that standard. None of us even come close to making the standard. So we pray that we wouldn't get mixed up and that we wouldn't bring you a resume stained with sewage. We know and believe that Christ is our only hope. And we pray that as a result of understanding this grace, that you would cause us to walk in obedience to you and to lay down the sins that we've been holding on to in our lives as Christians and to walk in a way that is pleasing to you, not to earn our salvation, but because of this wonderful doctrine of grace and salvation in Christ alone. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As, uh, as we sing, and please stand to sing this last song. As we sing this last song, let's just all evaluate maybe where we've brought our own human righteousness into this equation and repent of that and believe in Christ alone.